Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to jump into something, and I don't know where we're going to end up. I've got four passages I want to look at. Uh, we went in, how many of you have seen the Jesus Revolution movie? Raise your hand. How many of you have not seen it yet? Raise your hand. I would highly recommend it. I would recommend going. Uh, I remember those days. I was just a little kid. Don't look at me like that. Like, you, did you get saved there? No, I was little. But our church in Duluth was really impacted by the Jesus People movement. And uh, a bunch of them came into our church. Uh, a lot of them, their minds were scrambled. But as God restored them, they became leaders all through the north up there. And, and uh, our pastor was open and uh, received them and it was an amazing thing, but I, I wept through most of the movie, and the biggest reason was not because of memories, although they had some good music, man, I'm telling you, peace, baby. It was, it was awesome, but uh, the, the biggest reason that I wept is I could feel what was in the air at that time, and I've, I've felt that at various times in various places, that there was just an openness to the gospel. I believe the movie opened with this scene. It was near the beginning, and that's when I, I started crying. But all the staff was with us, so I'm trying to keep my, you know. If I watch a movie alone, then I, you know, I can really get into crying. But, uh, you know, you got to keep your masculinity intact, you know, with staff. So, but uh, this, this scene where there's a bunch of these young hippies, and just people in general, this, this crowd of people, and they crest this hill, and out beneath it opens up the ocean, and there's this massive baptismal service going on. And then the next scene that I, that I felt that same thing was the, the same idea, but they're all, this throng of hippies were making their way to what looked like a circus tent because they'd outgrown their building. And there was just this buzz, this expectancy in the air. And, and I was just so impacted by, by that because I have felt that before. If you have ever been in a season of revival, you know what that feels like. It's like the air is alive. And even unbelievers begin to say, wow, God dwells among men. There's this possibility of meeting their creator. And it, there's just a buzz at the end of the movie. I'm going to ruin it for you. It, uh, th this is just a little piece. It'll be good for you. But at the end, these, these young people show up. And there's Greg Laurie sitting on that cliff, that same cliff. And they said, hey, is this where everybody gets baptized? And he said, yeah. And he's, they said, well, we, we didn't know how it worked. We were wanting to come and get baptized. He said, where are you from? They said, Texas. Now, this is Southern California. They drove across the country. I remember when, when the outpouring happened here in 08. It started on a Tuesday afternoon. I came out of my office. I had been dealing with a conflict. I came out and there were bodies laid on the floor. By Saturday night, it was standing room only. There were, one pastor was from Montana. I mean, people coming from multiple states, when God is in the air, people will flock there. I'm telling you, there are hungry people in this nation, and all it's going to take is a spark, and it's, God's going to ignite something. 
And so I was just, I was so touched by that. And just, I, I remember watching back in the Brownsville days. Some of you were involved in the Brownsville revival. And I remember on the news, they were interviewing people. And this one guy, he was, he, he said, yeah, I'm, you know, I've got an issue with drugs. Where are you from? He was from Michigan. Didn't know Jesus. But he said, I heard about these meetings. Drove from Michigan to the panhandle of Florida. Because God was in the air. There was something that awakened within him. And so I've been just chewing on this and contemplating this and, and just asking myself, what is that? What is that spiritually? What is that? Because make no mistake about it, there is an atmospheric dynamic to revival like that. There's something that happens in the atmosphere, in the spiritual realm. Something takes place and all of a sudden people are aware of God, even though they don't know them. People that don't believe in God suddenly are in his presence and God happens to them. And they become believers before they even know the fact. The facts, because they've encountered him. And so I was just thinking about that. Lord, what is that dynamic in the air? What, what happens in those seasons of outpouring? And, and I think it's important for us to define that because that's what we're praying for. I'm not praying just for individuals to awaken. I'm praying for something to happen in the atmosphere over this nation so that people suddenly become aware that there's a living God and that they can, they can meet him. But there's things that happen in the spirit when that happens. And I, I want, so I want us to look at that this morning. And uh, so pause there. That's the first thing we're going to talk about. Another element of this, I don't know which one we're going to dive into. I'm, I'm a little, I'm just, we're just going to dive in and we're going to try to figure this thing out. The other thing I've been contemplating is this, is the, the fascinating reality that there is the micro move and the macro move. There is the individual encounter with God. There's individual revival. There's individual awakening where we all of a sudden encounter God. Our eyes are open. We become aware of his presence and we get saved. And then there's this macro cultural corporate encounter that can happen over a nation where a nation is shook by the power of God. Both of those are realities, and both of those are something we need to contend for, but I'm telling you, this is what I want. I want the macro, I want the corporate, I want the nationwide awakening. And, and the interesting thing is, is the dynamics to these two things are the same. It's just applying it on a much larger scale. And we can see this in Ephesians chapter 4 and Romans chapter 1. And so we're going to look at those two passages this morning. So guys, if you want to put up uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, we're going to look at that passage. And, and uh, my, the other thing I want to say is my apologies to the intercessors. Uh, we, we, I process my theology in prayer. And so often they get, the, they get the first wave of a message during the week as we meet up front and then we unpack it the rest on the, the weekend. So uh, and I just, I so appreciate the intercessors. You know, it's almost three years now that we've been meeting Tuesday through Friday every week crying out to God for this nation. And I think it's important that we remember the, what was the catalyst for us to start to meet and what it was is it was a Sunday morning and we were talking about the state of this emerging generation. My oldest son had given me a book. He's always recommending all these eclectic books to me. 
And uh, this particular one was called The Primal Scream. And it was by a Catholic sociologist by the name of Mary Ebertstadt. I don't know if anybody, any of you have ever read anything by her, but it is an absolutely fascinating book. Very godly woman, uh, brilliant. You start reading what she says. She's absolutely brilliant. And the subtitle was something about the where, where it was more eloquent than this, but it was saying, you know, where the heck did identity politics come from? That's, that's essentially what the book was about. And her premise was that Identity politics come from the lack of identity in the emerging generation. And she traces that to the sexual revolution which resulted in the, the, just the absolute decimation of the nuclear family. And she uses this phrase, she said, we are hopelessly communal beings as human beings. We are made to be communal. We're made to be relational. We're made to be in family. We're made to have those relationships. And the first place we find our identity is under the umbrella of our family. I am an Olson. I am the son of Jim and Faye Olson. I'm the brother of, of several siblings. And that's where my, my identity began to be formed. But we see the, the sexual revolution of the 60s the late 60s and early 70s, which is what that, the time frame that movie, The Jesus Revolution, is about. That time frame, there was what was known as the sexual revolution that absolutely has decimated the family. There were several things that converged to cause that. Uh, you know, the, the uh, 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 I, I knew I was going to have this problem. My, my mind... I'm having a hard time finding words this morning. We need to pray. Father, Lord, I ask that you would grace me this morning. Lord, give me the words to discharge what's on my heart. And Lord, I ask, God, that you would speak through me. Lord, that you would awaken faith. Lord, that you would awaken an ache within us, Lord. God, that we would not be the generation that misses a move of God. Lord, we want to see you move in great power. Lord, our heart breaks for this generation. And Lord, we're asking, visit it once again. In Jesus' name, amen. Birth control pill. That's what I was looking for. Can you believe that? I'm telling you, we're in trouble if God doesn't ride in on this. Birth control enabled people to, be, to begin to... Uh, liberated sexually without the consequences. And so the breakdown of the no-fault divorce, all of these things converged to decimate the family. And so she begins to look sociologically what that did to the, the American family, and really globally, that, you know, you have... Uh, people with, you know, stepfathers and their mother has a boyfriend that has siblings that move in with them and are, are they related to them or are they not? And if it's a, you know, just all this confusion so people don't know who they are. And so what's happened, and she, she, she traces this out that what, in not finding our identity in our homes, we identify by our woundedness. Then we look to a tribal affiliation with those who share our woundedness. And then we go to war against anybody that would disagree with our woundedness. And that is identity politics. It was fascinating. About two years later, I read the book by Carl Truman. And he went into how Wilhelm Reich 
was, uh, he, he was one of the fathers of CRT, critical race theory, and he was a, a, a avowed Marxist, and his, his uh, ideology was this. He said, capitalism has produced too much wealth for us to overthrow the West. We can't, we can't pit the poor against the rich anymore because capitalism has really raised the water level of a society financially. So he said, we've got to find another way to cause division. And one of the things he said is, we've got to make war against the family. We've got to do away with the fathers in the homes. We've got to do away with gender identity in the sense of, you know, the di distinction between male and female. We've got to create confusion in these. And so what was fascinating to me is Mary Eberstadt, she looked at the result and reverse engineered it and said, sociologically, this was the problem. Meanwhile, Wilhelm Reich many decades earlier, had already engineered it in advance and said, this is what we're going to do to reach our goals. And it worked. And the answer for this is the family of God. God sets the lonely in families. And if the world ever needed churches that can receive people in love, and wrap around them and provide the family they never had. If the world has ever needed that, it's right now. And so we were talking about that that morning, two, three, almost three years ago now. And as we were talking about that, it was like just this ache erupted. And we went into intercession. I didn't even get to finish my message. Many of you were here. And we just began to cry out. I, I couldn't stop weeping. And, and I, I, I remember... Around that time, I heard Lou Engle talking. He was saying that he was in a meeting in California, and he was talking about the, the blight of, of sexual confusion that has hit this generation, and there's such brokenness. Not unlike what happened in the late, late 60s, early 70s. You know Lonnie Frisbee in that movie? You know how he met his wife? She was, out, she was out sunbathing in the nude. And he was out street witnessing. He just walked up to her. She's laying there and, hey, how you doing? He preaches the gospel to her, led her to the Lord while she was naked, baptized her, and then they got married. I mean, this was a crazy time, okay? We look at what's going on now. We're like, oh, my goodness, what is happening to our nation? I'm telling you, this has happened before. And God answered with a move called the Jesus People Movement. So during that, a couple of years ago, when we were talking about all this, uh, I remember Lou Engle talking about, he was out in California talking, and he was talking about healing for homosexuality, and this young man stood up and said, Sir, if you don't have the power of God to deliver me from my sexual urges, you have no right to call me out of homosexuality. And Lou was hit, because Lou's a man of tremendous compassion. Now, most of us say, well, that young man needed an attitude adjustment, and that's probably true. But the fact is, there is truth that you and I are the ones that are called to carry the power of God. And until we carry enough power, we need to get in the closet of our prayer closet and begin to cry out to God to get the power to deliver people. Don't call people into the repentance that you don't have the power to help them out with. And so as we were talking about that, it was like a coal came from heaven and hit us. Boom. And we just launched into these prayer meetings. And the reason I bring that up this morning is God has not changed his mind. 
I told you we're going to be all over this morning. Just bear with me. Just prior to that, I'd called a good friend of mine, Jeff Collins. Many of you know Jeff. Jeff is a, a tremendous man of God. He's got the craziest stories. And I called him. I said, Jeff, what's the Lord telling you? And he began to weep. And he said, Dave, he said, I was on my way to a prayer meeting. I had, an, a, I had a prophetic astonishment. I'm thinking, what is that? I'm getting my you know, dictionary out. What's a prophetic? I said, what do you mean? He said, I was on my way to prayer at their church in Palestine, Texas. And he said, the Lord told me the state of the church right now is the two prostitutes before King Solomon arguing over the remaining child when one had died and one was left and the two prostitutes were arguing over the, the child. And when he said it, it hit me and I began to weep. I said, Jeff, what, what do you think it means? He says, I don't know. He was still praying into it. He said, but I know this, there's no moral high ground. We've all been unfaithful. We've all been prostitutes. And we stand before the king and as I began to pray into that, I really felt like the Lord stressed one thing to me. That the emerging generation, there were two children, there, there were two prostitutes, both had children, they were living together. And during the night, one of them had rolled over on her child and smothered the child to death It had died. The other child was alive, so the one whose child had died quietly lifted her dead child into the arms of the other sleeping mother and took her living child and snuggled it and went back to sleep. Of course, the, the, the real mother woke up, saw the dead child and began to wail. She was so stricken with grief and then she looked at it and she realized, this is not my child because a mother knows. She went over to the other lady and demanded her child back and she said, this is my child and they got in a big argument. So next thing you know, they're before King Solomon. It's that famous story where Solomon says, okay, they're both crying out and Solomon says, okay, let's bring over a sword. We're going to cut the baby in half and you both get one half of the baby. And of course, the real mother said, no, no, let it live. I don't care who raises it. And the other lady said, yeah, kill it because she didn't have the mother's heart for the child. And King Solomon wisely said, this is the real mother. And the picture is that Half of the emerging generation has already died under the weight of the sleeping, unfaithful bride. And what's remaining is there was this argument over it, but when it got before the throne, the care of that child was awarded to the one who wanted life preserved. She didn't, she didn't even care if she got to raise it. Someone else can raise it, but it's got to live. And I'm telling you, God's looking for churches. He's looking for people that that's their heart cry, that we say, God, we can't tolerate the state of this generation. You've got to let it live. They have to encounter Jesus. And I believe God wants to release a fresh Jesus revolution. I really do. The markers of these two generations are so similar. And it was like, there was, it was ripe for a move of God. Well, most were wringing their hands saying it's hopeless. In actuality, it's ripe for a move of God. In reality, Chuck Smith, the pastor in that movie, he said to his wife one day, he said, these kids are too far gone even for God. And she began to weep. And she said, Chuck, don't say that. You're saying they're too far gone for God? Don't say that. It was she that carried the burden and they began to invite these young people into their home and God created a wildfire that burned across this nation.
Tens of thousands of bombed out hippies came to the Lord. It was an amazing move of God. And I believe God wants to do it again, but he's looking for those who will cry out for their life. And that's what launched the prayer meeting. And I think we need to remember that, that God initiated something in this house. And our heart cry is, God, send in a harvest. Lord, visit this generation, regardless of who gets to raise it. Lord, if you send it here, we'll do what we can to make room for it. But Lord, if you've got to send it somewhere else, all we care is that this emerging generation lives, that they encounter God. Let's get into the word here. Ephesians chapter 4. I want us to look at this. Look at verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do and the futility of their minds. So Paul describes this way of thinking as futile thinking. It's, it's, there's futility in that, that thinking, that type of thinking. And then he goes on, he said, they are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to the hardness of their heart, they have become callous. So Paul is describing this phenomena. And he, in Ephesians 4, he's applying it to an individual. Now, this is a heavy passage, and we need to feel the weight of it for two reasons. We need to understand what has happened to others, and we also need to understand this is a warning from the Apostle Paul. He wouldn't warn us about that futile way of thinking if it wasn't a possibility for us to slip into it. And really what he's doing is he's giving us the downward spiral of a backslider. And in fact, if you've ever walked away from the Lord, if you've ever walked with Jesus and then walked away from him, you'll recognize the steps. And what he does is he reverse engineers this thing. He talks about the end result and then he begins to work himself towards the root cause. So look at how he says this. Look in verse 18. So he says, this is the futile thinking that he's talking about. Verse 18. They're darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. The NIV says separated from the life of God. One translation says cut off from the life of God. So that is the end result. They're, they're darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of, in other words, the cause of which is the ignorance that is in them. So there's this ignorance that sets in that the next stage of which is the darkening of the understanding and they're cut off from the life of God. But then look at what it says. That is in them due to, so the real root cause of this thing, the due to, the hardness of their heart. They became callous. What Paul is describing is a dangerous process that you could call the hardening of the heart. The hardening of the heart is never an event. It's an event that gives kickstart to a process that if you don't recognize it, will endanger your spiritual life. And so the hardness of the heart, it's an interesting word. He says, they, the, due to the hardness of the heart, they have become callous. You think about what a callous is. I remember I, when I was younger, I worked in, uh, I worked in this tomato uh, 
farm and we had 50,000 tomato plants and there were four of us guys and we would hoe tomatoes, 50,000 plants. Every day we would hoe. I weighed about 135 pounds but I could arm wrestle because I had all day long I would do this. Every year at the beginning I would get these huge blisters. At the time I was homeless and so I remember this one family let me live with them for a while, not very long, then they kicked me out too. But uh I was in, I remember my first day I had these huge blisters and I peeled the skin off and it's all pink underneath and there was dirt in there. And I thought, oh, I need to get, and I looked up on their, their sink, their, in the uh, bathroom and there was a bottle of alcohol. I thought, oh, that'll work. That'll clean it out. <laughs> I poured it on that open wound. Now, when you're at someone's house, you don't want to scream bloody murder because it'll freak them out. So I went, it was the silent scream in the mirror. It hurt. But at right, man, all of a sudden I had an instant callus. So being the smart guy that I was, I did the other hand. I, I really did. A callus is that because of familiarity, you lose sensitivity. That's what a callus is. You become so familiar with handling something that you no longer have the sensitivity you once did. So my hands would get like leather. I could, I could handle things and it didn't bother me. Some people do that with their feet. You people freak me out, okay? I'm like a tenderfoot. I need shoes on. But there are people that, tribes of people that never wear shoes, they'll run, run across rocks, not even feel it because their skin can get calloused. It's really a good picture of what Paul is talking about. The Greek word that he translates, hardness of heart, is uh, uh, porosis. Sounds like cirrhosis, the hardening of the liver. But it's porosis. Ancient literature, there was a story that used that term. And it was of a, a, a tremendously overweight man that was dying. He kept going into this comatose state. So they would take long needles and puncture him, trying to wake him up. And finally, they couldn't, they couldn't strike a nerve. And they called the phenomena porosis. It was like he, he could no longer be awakened. He couldn't, be, he couldn't feel. He lost sensitivity. It's the hardening of the heart. I want to say it's Proverbs 28, verse 14. And if I'm right, I'm impressed with myself because I haven't looked that verse up in a long time. But I want to say it's Proverbs 28, verse 14. It just popped in my head. It juxtaposes the hardening of the heart over against the fear of the Lord. It, it shows that they are polar opposites. You either fear the Lord or you harden your heart. The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil because you realize it is never worth it. Sin will never deliver what it promises. It'll always cost you much more than the price tag says. And you realize the fear of the Lord will cause you to not pursue evil. The hardening of the heart, on the other hand, is ignoring the conviction of the Spirit. When God's dealing with us, we ignore that. But you see what the next step is. The ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. So when we ignore a given truth, this thing called ignorance sets in. Let me say it again. When we ignore what God's dealing with us about in the moment, then what sets in is ignorance. Those are two different things. Ignoring means I don't want to know. I don't want to deal with this. I, 
And it's like we, we have this mistaken mythology that we buy into that we can compartmentalize our relationship with God. God, I'll obey you in every other area except this one. But what I'm telling you, based on the authority of God's word this morning, is you cannot compartmentalize that. When you ignore a given truth, ignorance begins to set in. What does that mean? Ignorance means that you begin to lose what you once knew. You ignore something and now you become ignorant of what you once knew. I was raised in church. I was a little Holy Ghost boy. My dad was a Pentecostal preacher. I was baptized in the Spirit at 12 years old. Had, I'd had encounters with the Lord. I'd seen the moving of the Spirit. But I made some conscious decisions that I was going to walk away from God. And the scary thing was that when I was away from the Lord, I could still explain to you sound theology. But it couldn't penetrate my heart. In fact, I remember there were times I'd get drunk and I would preach to people and they'd laugh. You're going to end up being a preacher. And they would laugh at me. And, but one, one of my, I had a, a distant cousin. He confronted me one day. He said, Dave, you don't even believe that stuff. I said, it's true. I, I've seen this stuff. He said, if you believed it, you'd live it. And it cut me. But even then, it seemed like I couldn't grasp it. It was like it would turn to a mist and, and to a shadow in my hands. It was like smoke. I couldn't grasp it. Ignorance began to set in. I could describe it intellectually, but I couldn't step into it experientially. And then what happens? They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of that ignorance. So the way it works is this. You ignore what God's dealing with you on. You think, I'm going to compartmentalize. I'm going to be open to God in these things that I want to be open to him on, but the things I don't want to, that's, be, that's for me to take care of. I don't want to deal with what God's dealing with me on. When we ignore the given truth in front of us, we set in motion a process where ignorance begins to set in. And then we become what the Bible calls darkened in our understanding. What that means is you lose the faculty to receive more truth. The organ that by which you're supposed to receive truth, it's your understanding, you can't receive anymore. It's like you're diminished. You can't understand. It's like there's a dullness. You can't make sense of what God's trying to tell you. It's a demonic thing. And then you're alienated from the life of God. Now that's what happens in the life of a believer. And let's just pause there. That's what happens in a human life, but also this can happen in the life of a believer. That's why Paul says, you must no longer live in the futility of the thinking of the Gentiles, of unbelievers. You've got to pay attention to what God is doing because you can set in motion this process. Every one of us have known people that once walked with God that don't anymore. And it's because of this very process. And so if you're there, you need to just cry out to God. I, when I got saved, I, I, there was like a, a window of time and there were, there were a bunch of praying little old ladies at First Church of the Open Bible in Ottumwa, Iowa. And they were praying for me and all of a sudden I entered this season where my mind became enlightened. All of a sudden, the things of God began to make sense. I could connect the dots. I began to have the fear of the Lord come upon me. I remember, I, I told this story recently, but I, was, I remember being hungry. I was homeless, and so I went into a, a gas station. I was going to steal some food, and being the health nut that I am, I was going to steal some Twinkies. Uh, and so I reached for them, and I remember this very, 
I, I, I'm very aware of all of a sudden as I was reaching, I thought, oh man, I'm going to have to pay a Twinkie's worth of hide for this. God is going to discipline me for this. He's going to take a Twinkie's worth out of my hide if I steal this. I knew I could get away with it in the store. I didn't have to answer to human beings because I could get away, but I knew God was watching. That was a strange thing for me to think. That wasn't how I usually thought. I was a thief and a liar. But all of a sudden, I became aware of God. Why? Because some people were praying, and there was light coming into the darkness. All of a sudden, I was aware. I began to see certain things. But even then, when I got saved, I remember telling the Lord, I said, God, I don't love you, and I don't want to serve you. But I know you got what I need. And I'm asking you, Lord, I will go through the motions. If you'll give me the desire to do this thing, I will go through the motions. It was just a, a cry of desperate. It wasn't humility. It wasn't this, this thing of, I mean, I, I still to this day, I can't believe that God took me back. The arrogance of that prayer. But all I did is crack the door and he came rushing in. And he didn't give it to me. I didn't have this overwhelming desire right away. I remember going to a counselor at Teen Challenge, and I said, listen, I can't go back. I was so demonized and so broken. I had out-of-body experiences with demons and stuff. I, I knew I was going to hell, and God graciously brought me back in. But I was numb to the things of God. And I remember going to a counselor and saying, I don't... I don't ever feel him. I don't, I don't have any sense of his presence. And he told me, he said, listen, you need to pray, Psalm 51, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And I began to ask him, God, Lord, I'm, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to go through the motions until you give it. But I'm asking you, God, restore to me. Lord, would you do it in me? And God graciously did. You don't even have to have a want to this morning as long as you have a want to want to. You may not have a wanna, but you gotta have a wanna wanna. And if you got a wanna wanna, I'm telling you, there is hope for you, the door is cracked, and God will come rushing in. And if you're here this morning, and you've hardened your heart, and you've begun to walk away from them, you may be living in secret sin, and everybody around you thinks, oh man, they're a, they're a tremendous man or woman of God, they, they're living a moral life, and you know better. I'm telling you, there's hope for you this morning, but you need to cry out to him. You need to let God come rushing in and rescue you from yourself because this is a very serious phenomenon Paul lays out here. Now what he lays out here in Ephesians 4, we see also in Romans 1, but it's on the macro scale. Turn to Romans 1. Romans 1, it shows us, verse 18, the corporate manifestation or the cultural manifestation of what we just saw on an individual scale. And what's fascinating to me is you see some of the same words. The futility of their thinking. The darkening of their heart, it says. Ephesians 4 says the darkening of their mind. Romans 1 talks about the darkening of their heart. And then both of them, we didn't see it in, in Ephesians. We didn't get, because it if you follow that passage, it says they're given over to sensuality and every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It implies that there's always a sexual brokenness that will flow out of that. That man 
is created to be a worshiper. And if you remove God from the throne, man will find something else to worship. And it's not a coincidence that every cult has some kind of aberration connected to man's sexuality. Because there's something about that that is so strong that if man doesn't have God on the throne, he descends into this idolatry of twisted sexuality. And so this is what we see here. Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. If you know the truth and you suppress the truth, God takes it very seriously. If you try to keep other people from the truth, God takes that very seriously. I remember when I was running from God and I had friends that would come under conviction and I would try to talk them out of it. It makes me tremble to this day. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So this is why you'll hear people say, when people say, I don't believe in God, I'm an atheist. God says to them, I don't believe in atheists, I'm God. <laughs> because it is evident in creation. To become an atheist, you literally have to be darkened in your understanding. And you have to do mental gymnastics to get away from the evidence. Because it's evident. If there's a creation, there's a creator. To believe this was just a biological accident requires much more faith than surrendering to Jesus does. And so he says that God has made it clear to man. It's what theologians call natural revelation. There is special revelation in Scripture, but there's also natural revelation in nature so that men are without excuse. God can call us to account. So that's why people say, well, what about the man who's never heard the gospel? How can God, how can God send someone to hell if they've never heard the gospel? Men are without excuse. And when men cry out to the God of heaven, even if they don't know what to call him, there is story after story after story all down through history of God revealing himself to those people. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, their thinking became futile. There it is. There's that word again. You see, because Paul is dealing with the same dynamic here in Romans 1, but just on a grander scale, a cultural application of this individual backsliding. He goes on. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Go ahead and turn that, guys. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. You see, there's this thing of the darkening of the understanding where you can't grasp. It's like you don't have the capacity to understand. There is darkness that comes in and you can't connect the dots. You have no light. It's like you're groping about in the darkness trying to understand. Goes on, it says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up 
in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies. The first phase is sexual immorality among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who blessed is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, now here's the second stage. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations to those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations for women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in them the due penalty of their error. So this is the second stage of this this decline. One generation embraces sexual immorality, the next generation embraces homosexuality, and gender confusion begins to come in. There are sociological reasons for that, there are psychological reasons for that, and there are spiritual slash theological reasons for that. In the breakdown of the home, when the home begins to break down, little boys and little girls need their mom and dad engaged in their lives. Especially the father. It's the father who defines the gender of their children. A little boy sparks his little masculinity off his dad's. And when he doesn't have a dad, there are certain personalities that tend more to identify with the mother. Some personalities, what they'll do is they're looking, they look to establish their masculinity through sexual conquest with numerous women when they come of age. Other men are looking for that validation through sexuality, and they're looking for the male affirmation that they missed as a child, and it becomes sexualized. So there's psychological reasons, there's sociological reasons in the breakdown of the family, but the theological reason is right here. They're turned over for continual lust for more. Men committing shameless acts and receiving in themselves a due penalty of their error. Let's go on, guys. And and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters. Of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. They they invent new ways to commit evil. Uh, Disobedient to parents. Isn't that interesting? He throws that in that long list. Young people. (laughs) Obeying your parents is serious. Amen, Nathaniel? (laughs) He's my youngest. Seriously, that's some heavy stuff, man. And he puts it on the same plane with all this other stuff. They did not only do, uh, so they, they not only practice these things knowing that they deserve to die, they not only do them but approve of those who practice them. There is a cultural celebration of this stuff that begins to set in. Where good becomes evil, evil becomes good. Where they celebrate evil. And what we see is these, the same markers on a cultural scale that we saw in Ephesians chapter 4. Now let's turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, so now this is Pauline theology, okay? Paul is weaving a theology here that you and I need to understand because this is what's going on in our nation and God wants to penetrate this and lift this off. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The devil has a schematic. He has a pattern by which he operates, okay? 
So verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness. There's that word again. Over this, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And so there are forces of darkness that attempt to impose darkness on both the individual mind, but also on the culture at large. That word darkness can be translated, it, it has the idea, it's, in other places it's used as shadow. It's like you're in the shadows, the light can't get through. Also the idea like, a, a, almost like this. It's like, have you ever been walking along on a cloudy day? I mean, it's a dismal day. It's like it's kind of cold out. The, the sun just can't penetrate. It's kind of brown, gray sky. And, and all of a sudden, there's a cloud break and the sun bursts through. And your face feels warm. And it's like, it's a good day. Everything changes. Because all of a sudden, the sunburst happened. And it changes the dynamic of everything because it penetrated the overcast skies. That overcast is a picture of what that darkness is like. Both in our minds, but also culturally. There is a shared ideology that we have as a culture. The enemy tries to weave, and the more people buy into it, the more he can reinforce that. And it, it creates a darkness over a nation, over a people, over those with that shared belief system. But there are times where God breaks in, and it's like there's a sunburst. And the light of God breaks in. And I say all that to say, that's what I saw as those hippies were cresting the cliff, looking at the baptism. It was a time when all of a sudden these tormented, demonized young people, all of a sudden something lifted off the nation. It wasn't just an individual mind. There was a dynamic in the air. It was atmospheric. Those powers of darkness had been displaced and all of a sudden the sun burst through and people were aware God dwells among men I can meet the creator God I can have a relationship with him there's hope for my life what it is is the displacement of darkness and when we gather here morning after morning and cry out to God, when we are praying, when we worship around here, we're not worshiping just because we like it, although I like it. I worship Jesus because he's worthy. It doesn't matter if I feel it. It doesn't matter if I like the music. I can go into a church. Believe me, I was raised in a church where our pianist, if you can only worship when you like it, there ain't going to be any going on, Okay. <laughs> She was like, she would play, beat that thing, and then she'd stop and say, I don't know why we come to church here. When we're down in Texas, we can feel them. It's like, wow, got to take the wind out of the room. I was baptized in the Spirit during a worship service in that church. I remember my dad getting up and saying, you may be seated. And I thought, seated? I'm going to rapture. I'm going to put a hole in the ceiling. I mean, God was all, I didn't know that I was baptized in the Spirit at that moment. I just knew that I was so excited by what I felt that I couldn't speak in English anymore. And I kept stopping myself. I thought, I'm stuttering. I'm so excited. Come to the Jesus. 
You may be seated. We worship because he's worthy. But your enjoyment of worship is part of your worship. The fact that we enjoy being in his presence is part of what we offer him. Because we're saying, Lord, you're awesome. The best time of my week is when I'm with you, Lord. When I, I know I'm always with him. I'm talking about his manifest presence. Hey, I know he's always with me Went before my coffee. It feels like it more afterwards, but he's just as much with me before my coffee. I know that. But I love to feel his presence. I love being with the saints where he comes in the room and we know Jesus just stepped in. The name above all names has just entered the room. Oh. We worship for that. But there's an added dimension. There is a thing called intercessory worship. And we are worshiping King Jesus for the sake of this community. Because I'm telling you, there are people out there that are in just as much darkness and pain and lost like I was and like you once were. They don't even know that there's a God in heaven. There are people in this community right now that are contemplating taking their own life. They feel like I'm at the end. And you and I can push back darkness by pressing the crown rights of King Jesus in the spiritual realm, by lifting his name up high, declaring his worth. And it does make a difference. And there's a tipping point. There are those seasons called revival, awakening, where darkness is displaced for a season. And all of a sudden, people who didn't understand, all of a sudden they're aware, there's a possibility here. I think God is real. I heard someone talking about him, and I felt something. I think, I was listening to a guy interviewed the other day. He was, uh, Lonnie Frisbee had gone down to the beach. Just, he, he said, he said, back in those days, he said, it was crazy. He said, all these hippies would do the craziest things. We were just, that was normal. People were abnormal normally. And uh, he said, so this long-haired little frail hippie got up, put two tomato crates and started down there preaching and he was talking about Jesus and then he just started calling people into the water and people just started bawling running into the water. It wasn't planned. They would just run into the water and he was baptizing people and he said, I'm watching him. He said, all of a sudden my heart starts to beat and that little hippie in the water points to me, yeah, you, calls him out. He said, God's all over you. He wants to save you. He's inviting you into his kingdom. He said it was almost involuntary. I jumped up, I'm bawling, I run into the water and get baptized. He didn't even have time to process all the information yet. But there are seasons. Just like those little old ladies produced for me as an individual. And when I, when I got saved, there were several of us my age. I wasn't associated with these other people. I knew who they were. I got saved alone. But there was this little group of people about my age. Several of us ended up in the ministry in a little town of 27,000 people. It was, it was like something opened over that city for this summer and a bunch of us got swept into the kingdom. We're asking God to do that for a nation and a generation. I'm telling you, this generation and the twisted ideology that's being shoved down their throat and they're being taken advantage of it's not too big for Jesus. The Lord wants to step in and rescue. 
And so I just wanted to share that this morning because you and I need to understand what we're praying for. We're not just praying for a good church service. We're asking God, God, visit this nation. It is time for another Jesus people movement. Call it what you want. I just want to see God awaken this nation. And I believe he wants to send it. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.